0: listen to your body what am i listening for do i know my body well enough to understand what it's saying once i hear something what do i do with that information
1: hi i'm Teresa, and welcome to the podcast that explores the stories the body holds and the stories the body tells i'm Sherry, and
0: our aim is to connect the individual to the collective through our shared stories of living
1: in a body and each week, Sherry and I pick a different topic and have a casual conversation. This is Anecdotal Anatomy. Welcome, listeners. Take a nice soft breath in and a slow breath out. And get ready for shit
0: you hear in a yoga class. Shit we shouldn't hear in a yoga class anymore. Shit we say in a yoga class. It's all shit. It's all good. Yes fertilizer shit makes shit grows flowers right we had a whole episode on that shit grows flowers so today's going to be a fun episode we hope you know there are some things that we'll talk about that feel important to discuss um within the evolution of yoga in the west in terms of cues are are we working from a a, you know lineage of cues or understanding of the thing that we're we're putting
1: out there so this is what the conversation is going to be like today Yeah. And, you know, depending on where you're taking yoga classes, you may have people weaving between languages, between English and Sanskrit. And, you know, those who have taken multiple classes might know words like Tadasana, which is mountain pose, or Namaste, Uh, the light in me honors the light in you. But if you're brand new coming into a class, you know, there's a lot to learn um, just from the language of what you'll be hearing. From the teacher and maybe other people who are on the mat around you, but my my brother and his family lived in Nepal at one point
0: in Kathmandu, and I went out there for um, my oldest niece's bat mitzvah, which was you know strange and beautiful and um, a whole different experience in Nepal. But when you're in a country where people greet you with namaste, like in India, Nepal, and other you know places, it it is it is extraordinary. And it becomes mundane. It's the, the magic in the in the ordinary moment, the mundane everyday greeting. Hey, how are you today? Is how we might say something here. But when someone comes up to you and looks you in the eyes and puts their hands together in front of their heart, gives you a bow and says, Namaste, there's this this, this feeling, this implication, this this feeling of general knowledge that we are all made of this light and love and that we get to bow to that, that we get to honor and greet that in the other. As a reflection from ourselves. And I got to say, I didn't live there for a long time. I stayed there for a week, but it never got old. Mm.
1: And what a, like listening to you say that, I think about walking down the street with Siva and seeing other people. Some people walk by and you just pass. There's no eye contact. There's not even the nod of acknowledgement. Then there's the greeting that's just like, the little tilt of the head, like, I see you, but I'm not getting too closely, right? Then maybe there's a, hi, how are you? And I also walk with a friend at times, my other friend, Sherry. And when she greets people, it's a full greeting. Hello, how are you today? It's nice to see you. And there's an engagement of conversation that comes based on all of those different ways of doing the exact same thing. Are we But bringing our hands together and really intentionally greeting someone, passing them, nodding, how do we interact? And that's not what we're talking about today. (laughs) We're talking about things in a yoga class, but also one of our missions is connecting the individual to the collective. And And you talk
0: a lot about living the yoga. You know, the yoga off the mat is a lifestyle. And as a lifestyle, the language definitely comes in. You know, the shit we hear in the yoga class is often the shit we say off the mat somewhere (laughs) else. And so, you know, there's
1: context matters, but how much? So let's dive into some of the funny, well, I'm going to dive into one that you sent me this morning on a list, which made me chuckle. So I'm going to start with something fun. And that was make your gluteus maximus, your gluteus minimus. And as somebody who teaches uh, musculoskeletal anatomy, I was like, how do you make your gluteus maximus, your gluteus minimus? But then I went beyond the science and heard what was being said, which was, let's get that yoga butt. You know, this is yeah. really going to tighten everything up. So.
0: <laughs> so we can laugh about it and we can have fun with it. But let me just be clear. There ain't no such thing as yoga butt. And it doesn't exist. It's not a thing. I've been practicing for almost 25 years and my butt does not look like that. And I love my, I have an ample butt and I'm happy about it.
1: And so there There we go. Whatever butt you have. (laughs) We're already dispelling the cues. (laughs) Well,
0: this, this list was actually made in with a lot of fun. We have a a local teacher, um, June, who was always, I mean, her classes were filled with aphorisms and, you know, little quips that she would say. And so for her birthday, we, we surveyed the different classes and we all came together and, and put this list together. So some of what we'll talk about is going to come from that list. We also put out the question in one of our episodes and in our newsletter for people, what they hear. Now, the, the responses we got, and we got about a half a dozen responses were things that people do hear in their class and things in the ways that it was affected, how how they interact with their, their yoga. But they weren't like, Uh, you know, like something that I would say in class, we're going to engage our glutes back to the glutes, but we're not cracking any nuts. Like to me, that cracked me up every time. Crack up. (laughs) But it it, it never seemed to get old. You know, I could say it in the class that has heard it a hundred times and it was almost at some point expected. So, you know, there are the things that help us refine our poses, you know, like root down to rise up. There's an energetic component to that cue. Uh, And it's going to land differently on different people. But that is something you can work with. Some of these other things, they're fun and they kind of allow us to giggle at ourselves, not take ourselves too seriously while still taking the practice seriously.
1: Yeah. I mean, since we're on the subject of glutes, (laughs) let's just make it all about glutes today. We'll make it all about glutes. I might not have the correct person, but I think it was Leslie Kamenoff in one of the classes that I took was talking about tucking the tailbone. And I know that in tucking the tailbone, I don't particularly like that clue because it feels like there's a lot of clenching. Like you're saying, we're not cracking any nuts. There's a lot of clenching that kind of locks down the ability to move if uh, if tucking the tailbone is m- misinterpreted as clenching the glutes. And one of the things that he said in the training is like, yeah, well, that's easy to figure out because we have a gluteless society, which means, and you know, as a musculoskeletal anatomy teacher in some ways, yeah, our glutes can get really weak and they do contribute to low back pain and so many other things because we sit and maybe we don't have yoga, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the tuck thing is really interesting because I also was in my 300 hour training The teacher talked about that cue as being problematic. The clenching thing comes from uh, absolutely that is one of the things that can be problematic about it. The other one was that when you tuck and she uh, the teacher also said maybe you can use the word tilt. To me that was semantics. Tuck and tilt is uh, pretty much the same thing. Tilt may give a little less of a like but again it's all interpretation. But the implication there was that if we're say you know, that there's a, a, an element of a backbend in every forward fold and an element of a forward fold in every backbend. And that comes in the position of the pelvis. So before I'm going to forward fold, I'm going to have a, a slight tilt to the pelvis that brings my hip bones forward. And then I can lengthen through my spine and forward fold. And that was that was my interpretation of where that shows up with that. But that tucking can actually reverse the curve of the low back as well, giving a roundedness where you might want less of a tilt of the tailbone as a tilt of the pelvis. So that tucking would reverse the action that we would really be looking for to begin with. And so what the, the, the solution in that class was rather than tuck or tilt even to lengthen, to pretend that your tailbone is a plug and the outlet is in the ground, so that you're lengthening down and almost supporting the natural curve as it is, but giving it some space. But that was just you know, my interpretation of that too.
1: Yeah, I heard a lot of urkel in the posterior tilt, uh, which which uh, we will
0: sometimes say in class. If you're of a certain generation, this is uh, we don't want to over urkel it. Yeah.
1: So, in all of those cues, one of the things that I really like and gets very similar to the same result is engaging the lower core. Mm -hmm. If we work with really understanding the muscles of the abdomen, as we exhale and engage that lower core, we lift up on the front of the pelvis, the pubic bone, which then will allow the low back to find that length and the tailbone just naturally comes to the ground. So I like that. Because A, it protects the low back because people find their core. And core is such an important part, not only in yoga, but just in moving around and being humans, that we want this nice, strong relationship with how to engage our core. And when we do, a lot of the other cues just naturally come into existence, like the navel comes to the spine. We hear that a lot. When the core is engaged and we find that lower body strength and with the center balance of this the bowl the pelvis like you're talking about is finding that tilt back and forth that's natural. Uh, when you engage the core, the navel naturally comes to the spine. The tailbone naturally lifts, and the and the pelvis finds its center position. Honors those curves in the spine. One of the cues that that
0: was. Allowed my imagination to become more precise with what it meant to engage core was engaging or lifting the pelvic floor, not engaging the glute so much. But what happens when you activate that muscle that keeps you from peeing, that pelvic floor, and lifting it up just a little bit? That to me brought a nuance into where my core was, how that gets engaged. And then from there, all those kind of like I think of one of those puzzles where everything kind of just falls into place, like you were just suggesting. But core to me in the beginning was draw my navel to my spine and up. And there was an almost an aggression in my own body in doing that because, you know, look, I'm a woman of a certain age. I was always taught to suck it in and, you know, get that button in like the skinny jeans anything. So to me, like the, the idea of core was it, it's a little aggressive. It's it's not violent. I mean, I don't mean to go to that place, but it taps into all of that discursive thought that I have about my own body about that old part of my body. And one of the things that June said in that long list, she says, most of us want six pack abs, but we should want six pack back. Mm-hmm. And so they're related. And I don't think it's ever a one or the other. It's not, you should have this over that, but that there's a balance. Like, I think in one of our episodes, we talked about the guys at the gym who have really overdeveloped quads, but like nothing going on in the hamstrings, like the flat back leg. And like, it just, they look like they might tilt, topple over. You know, you gotta have the balance.
1: Getting in touch with inner muscles, right, is hard. If, you know, we can talk to just about anybody and say, hey, can you flex your bicep? And people are like, I got that. I know where it is. It's pretty common. Everybody, not everybody. But it's unusual for somebody to not have heard that word and to be able to isolate something that's right there on the top of your arm and very visual. When you come into the deep muscles of the body, like the pelvic floor and the core, which is a pair that work in in conjunction with each other. But And yes, the pelvic floor is part of that core to lift up. It's a hammock that supports all of those lower organs so that they're not falling. So we want that pelvic floor to have engagement. We want it to be strong and to have a relationship with knowing where it is and what it feels like. But we also have a network of, muscles that fit across the higher part of the abdomen, the transverse abdominus and the rectus abdominis, and all of these abdominal muscles that we lose contact with as, I don't know when, I don't know when we lose contact with them, but I do know that it is hard to cue people to feel those muscles and to really get that sense of I can engage my core without it being aggressive like you were talking about that I can find my core and have a walking around tone to it that we find by engaging them fully like in a cue that I would use would be to exhale and really like knit in right like find that core in it and engage those muscles. But then release them so that you're walking around with 15 or 20% of that engagement so that the core is engaged in a way that allows us to move with freedom and ease in our class and in our walking around life, mm-hmm. but not feel like we're so clenchy mm-hmm. that nothing can happen past that engagement. And
0: I found that through the pelvic floor no. it, because it doesn't exist in a vacuum, it doesn't just engage the pelvic floor, and that's the only thing, that was the beginning of my understanding of the connections and how, when I did that, how did that affect my hips? When I did that, how did that affect, so if I engage my pelvic floor and then all of a sudden my navel is gently moving back, I have a lift of the hips. Like there's that there's an organic movement in my body, maybe not in everyone's body, but that gave me a certain sense of precision in the engagement of the core. So words matter, but words are going to fall on different people in different ways. And we all come in with our own, um, the lenses through our own experience. And so if we feel like if we're coming in and we we are someone like t- today, I do 200 crunches every day now with, as part of my morning practice, <clears throat> but I do it in a loving way. It's not the way I did it in my 20s where I was like big push up or uh, sit ups with my feet under the couch and, you know, really going the full range. I break them up into quadrants of 50. But I'm also much more aware of the things that are happening around my core as I'm doing that, including my breath. So we, breath is, is, was a big response in terms of what people hear, not holding your breath. What happens when you engage your pelvic floor? The first thing for me is all of a sudden I have a retention of breath that then I have to release. And that release may be also that 10,
1: 15, 20% that you're talking about. Yeah. So there's the strength and there's the clench and right coming back and forth. And the more that we are in tune with our body. So the more embodied we become, which I think is a real power of uh, yoga and practicing is that it helps us come out of our head and into our bodies. I had lunch with a friend, a cousin actually over the holiday weekend. We're recording on Memorial Day, Monday right now. And She was talking about a teacher who did a lot of like different types of tapping, not specifically the tapping method, but just engaging with your body by tapping into your your legs or your arms at a time when you're maybe feeling a little anxious. And she was talking about, you know, how much that really had assisted in like releasing some of that stress. And my brain, And I don't know if this was the intention of the person teaching that method, but my brain went right to, oh, she just took you out of your head and into your body, right? By creating all of this sensation throughout the body, you start to come down out of the head and experience more of what's going on. And I think that is another really great power of all of what we're doing in yoga and these cues and the great work that teachers do in being able to communicate to a group of people movement and mobility within their body in a yoga class. So going back to how do we bring people into the experience of their body and engaging the core, finding those muscles, but not so much that it feels like it always has to be something that we're thinking about, but more so to get in contact with that lower core, with the pelvic floor, so that in our daily life, in our movements, in just our overall health, we're working with muscles that maybe we can easily forget even exist. You know, it's hard to not know that you have arms and legs because you see them all the time. But what about those ones that are more subtle that we can through our yoga practice and many other things? really focus our attention to get to know in a much more intimate way sounds like koshas sounds
0: like you know working with the koshas sounds like the eight limbs of yoga sounds like you know back in the day at the prancing peacock during the trainings i did a module called finding your voice finding your authentic voice and we did a lot of different activities from physical from the laughter yoga and you know trans dancing and you know running around to doing some acting exercises And um, we would do, I would uh, put little archetypes uh, back to archetypes in a hat. I would write down like airline pilot or, you know, a up comedian, or we had one student who made up her own. She did Mr. Rogers, you know, whether you're an athletic coach or whatever, I would put all these things in the hat. People would pick them. And then I would have them at this point in the training, they will have already learned how to instruct the sun salutation, A, B, and half. So I would say you pick which one of the sun salutations you want to teach. First one you teach by the character you've picked, second one you teach in the voice of the ideal yoga teacher and then as far as you think, and then the third one as yourself. And the interesting thing was that the perfect yoga voice and the one as themselves were often very, very similar, but when they were asked to do the character that was outside of their comfort zones or you know they were more thinking about the character than what it was they were doing, there was a sense of ease in the teaching because they weren't thinking about how they were instructing. They were thinking about how to communicate through this other character, through this other voice. And the thing that came up over and over again was that, you know, the words matter, but they matter a little bit less than the way we, we connect with our own voice and then we connect with others. So the part of teaching, we've talked about being in the seat of the teacher and we'll get back to the shit that we hear and say, but to be able to see your students, to be able to see what they're doing is easier when you are looking at them and not actually doing the whole practice. I'm not saying you don't have to model, but sometimes if we have the faculty to cue and to instruct through our words and through metaphor and through images, then we can show the actual pose or have someone else model it for the refinements, then, you know, it's, it's less about what we're saying than how we're saying it. I, I just, I feel like there's, there are so many different energies at play when you're in front of the class and you're, you're teaching and we rely so heavily on the cues and the words. And I think that there's space to include other ways of communicating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Finding your voice. And I love that because yoga cueing is a skill that needs to be developed over time. And, Initially, in uh, yoga teacher training, we're taught our different poses by hearing our teachers cue us on how the, what those poses are. And there are suggested cues. And I think that's really a great way to start. It's almost the same as in massage where we teach people a sequence because it is a great tool to teach people how to do every, po- how every <laughs> not every pose, All the different techniques, how to make transitions around the body and to be able to deliver a full body massage. And in cueing in yoga, we are taught not only what the poses are, but how to communicate them. And it's a great starting point when you asked your students to do it as a different character. I find that to be a really interesting way to challenge myself. To find more words and expansive words, and to really start to understand beyond what I heard as the cue for a specific pose, to really starting to embody and understand for myself what it feels like in my body and find my own words or the things that I have heard that might not translate in my brain to an easy way to execute that movement, and then. I'm challenged to find a better way to verbally communicate and augment that with visual assistance of this is what this looks like.
0: That's why I think teaching beginning classes, beginners classes are much more challenging than teaching advanced classes, because there's already an assumption of, of understanding. And one of the things that you said, and I think it's really interesting because we've both done many different trainings and the teachers all teach their trainings different. They're in absolutely different voices, different ways in some, you know, here's the language of it. Here's how I want you to repurpose it. And that's, like you said, a great place to start, especially if you haven't been doing if you haven't had the time or experience to really embody it or to begin to understand. And even that understanding is problematic because it's going to be different when it lands in someone else's body. My issues in my body are not going to be your issues in your body. So if I have a really hard time backbending and you just fall right into wheel, like there are different ways of cueing the hypermobile and those who are, like June even says, it's the, the hypermobile that she's more worried about or something Absolutely. like that. Because you know they're just flopping in. There's a way to kind of make that more precise too. But there were other trainings that I had done that required an understanding of what the material was before even the language of teaching it was there. So it was either whether it was the yoga sutras or it was, you know, going through different ways of embodying the sun salutations or the various asana poses, but an understanding of what it is in the body, what, what, like, what is happening in the body while you're in it, which admittedly, like, that's why I had to take four other um, anatomy trainings. And that's why I wanted to do this podcast and write this book about understanding the body through characters and stories and shared experiences. Because even though I got to teach for many, many years and I've been on the mat for more than twice as long, I still, I still struggle. I still have my issues. I still don't, I'm not fully embodied. You know, I'm embodied enough to be able to communicate enough. But as long as, as the teacher, I know where that enough is and I'm not pretending to be more than that, (laughs) kind of like taking what you need from the pose and no more. June also would say that, don't get greedy. It's the ego that gets you in trouble. Like take what you need, find that soft edge and move from there. And I think as teachers, we also have that responsibility to know what we know and to know what we don't know.
1: Absolutely. Uh, In anything that anybody is teaching to really understand where you are proficient and where you need extra help is also A whole exercise in learning and getting in touch with your own ego and not letting the ego be the leader of conversation. So to draw that line. And admittedly, I probably stepped over it. I remember. Me too,
0: man. I've gotten in trouble with that. That's how I know because I fucked up and I, you know, my ego did take the lead. And, you know, when someone in the room knew more than I knew, then there was like a a contraction that would happen. But now there's an expansion because I'm a much more
1: curious human. Doesn't mean it won't fall back in every once in a while. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first started teaching massage, I was green at being a teacher. I knew my work, but teaching is also a different skill. You know, you can know something. That doesn't mean that you can communicate it well. But I allowed a class to lead me down a rabbit hole. And we went from one question to another question. They were all really great questions. And for a good long time, I knew the answers to the series of questions that were coming. But all of a sudden, I wound up in this hole of being asked questions that I had no idea what the answer to them was. And thankfully I had been taught earlier in my life that it was okay to say, you know what? I really don't know the answer to that. And I felt comfortable enough to be able to say, I don't know, but I will find out. And on our break, I went into the teacher's lounge and I asked one of my teachers who was also a teacher at the school. I was like, I have this question. I don't have any idea. Can you show me like what books that might be here on our shelf that I might be able to find the answer to this question. And I, she said, first of all, I need to ask you a question. That is not in the curriculum in the class that you're teaching at all. There's nothing about this whole conversation that fits in with the curriculum of that class. So how did you get here? And so I explained that I allowed people to lead me down this hole. And she was like, well, that's, a te- that's something you need to learn as a teacher is that's a really great question however it's not part of this lesson and we will get to that long, you know further down in your education so she said that you know that's a uh, a management of class problem that you're having not the answer to the question that's where you find the answer to your question but in the future right i let my my students lead the class And I've had students in my yoga classes who also wanted to be the teacher in the front and tried to lead the class. So there's the things that we say, but also the understanding of being somebody who is the teacher in the classroom and to help all of the students, even the ones that may know more than us or might want to interject and be the teacher that there's the management and the languaging that we develop with skill and time, and after making a series of mistakes, to be honing not only our language, but our ability to communicate that information to the people who come to us in our classes.
0: I think, and that's about staying in integrity and staying in alignment and developing the hard skills. I mean, the soft skills you have or you don't have, but those hard skills of managing the classroom and I think that also goes to in terms of alignment and integrity of the teacher. If you're going to cue someone and say, you know, modify when you need to use blocks or do use the things you need to to feel what you need to feel, then we need to also model that in front of the class because what we say when we're up there is as important, or what we don't say is as important as what we do say. So if you go into a class and you always feel like there's just something not right about it when you leave. And every time you go into that class, the teacher is showing off or doing all sorts of stuff and it feels inaccessible. And at the same time, they're saying, oh, listen to your body. And you know all the things that we've talked about, that's also problematic. Listen to your body. What am I listening for? Do I know my body well enough to understand what it's saying? Once I hear something, what do I do with that information? It's just one of those overarching things that we say to kind of cover our own ass, but it's still important to do. But how do we do it? Like so many of these things, modify. What do you mean by that? You know, and, you know, don't vilify the blocks. Don't vilify the props. Also know when you don't need them anymore. You know, that there's discernment and time for everything as we approach. And we'll get to some of
1: what our students have said in a little bit. I just, you looked like you
0: wrote something down that you might want to say.
1: I'm always (laughs) writing notes when we talk and sometimes I get to them and sometimes I don't, right? (laughs) You know, sometimes the conversation goes beyond the note and we don't really have to backpedal into it. But there is communication and that's really what we're talking about is what do we communicate? One of the funny things about cues that I said in a class, which, which was breathe into the place of discomfort. And so I would say that, you know, if you find this place, you find this edge, breathe into the place of discomfort or breathe into that edge. And one day I actually had somebody ask the question, how do I take my breath? and put it in my hip. And so it really made me have to stop and think about that cue because in my brain, you breathe, air comes into the lungs, and it goes out of the lungs. That's where the air, I mean, of course, oxygen is transmitted throughout the entire body in our cells, so it does move throughout the body. But the cue of breathe into this body part Mm -hmm. was being interpreted as if the physical breath could move to that part by will right so kelly and i don't
0: know if kelly got this from cindy lee because she's home trained from new york but they would say imagine you have nostrils in that space imagine that it's all imagination because yes our our the oxygen goes into our lungs and then you know is spread out through the body through the blood and all of that but our imaginations are so strong, koshas, like the mental sheath. We get to imagine I have, you know, a set of nostrils behind my knee where I'm feeling a little bit of discomfort and breathe into that space. And it's amazing what can happen just by virtue of of imagining.
1: It is, and now I'm imagining nostrils all over my body. And gosh, <laughs> that's quite a visual. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, I wanna get to a couple of, go ahead. Okay, I forgot what I was gonna say, so you can just leave it as nostrils, nostrils, breathing into yeah. stuff. Yeah, it was. Oh, so one of the things that I came up with after I was asked by the student, how do I like actually breathe in? Was maybe a better cue for me was as you're breathing, allow your intention to be drawn to the place of discomfort or allow it to come to your attention and breath to align so that you can feel what's going on in your hips. And so there was like telling you, telling my students to send their breath there was really for me, a metaphor of saying, allow your attention to rest in those places and allow the breath to flow with ease. Um, and then there's going to be other people in class
0: who love the metaphor, who are poets and are, appreciate and can immediately access the idea of breathing into your butt or breathing into your earlobe or breathing into your elbow. You know, that's going to be, for me as a poet, it's, it, it, there is no question of disconnect. There is no like literal interpretation. It is just that, and it's liberating, but for the person who needs that, so that's the thing that we have to be in the room where it's happening, you know, and hear our students, listen to them. And if that one person needs a little bit more, then we get to give it to them. But then we have to also have the, the capacity to, to be the giver you know, and not just,
1: uh, you know. Yeah, and maybe that's why, you know, cueing is such a skill because there are certain parts of our cueing that we want to be a literal interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. We want the knee to track and not go beyond the toes in our front leg in Warrior One. We want the knee to be straight and neither abducted or or adducted in, you know, weaving out to the external or weaving in. So some cues are literal. And then when you add the more poetic, right, breathe into, that's a non-literal cue. And I think, like you said, some people are going to weave back and forth and really love it because of the poetic imagery that there is to some of this beautiful language that we have around yoga. But yet then we also want things to be very literally interpreted. So it's a dance, right? It is a dance.
0: And the literal cues can be poetic as well. Imagine there's a wall outside your right leg and you're gently pressing up against it to keep that knee tracking over. If someone's, you know, impulse is to have the knee constantly in toward the big toe, imagine you've got a strong wall right outside your knee and you're pressing gently into it. That is, it's literally putting the knee where you want it, but it's offering it in a poetic way. So, you know, that also, you can, like you said, you when you say namaste, that you define it, you say namaste, the light in me honors the light in you, that you're giving both the literal and the poetic at the same time. Yes. And we can do that if we, if we choose. But so what we say, we had some students come in, Marion, who is a mutual friend, she had come to both of our classes. She, her memory was that, how you would emphasize shoulder safety. And how when you would take the arms out to the side, you would encourage people to stop if there was, what did she say? If there's a problem, only go as high as you're comfortable and then just kind of hang out there. And so there's this, and I think you even, something you had said, changed my cueing in um, extended side angle, where I used to say, take your arm up and over your ear. Then I'd say, if that's not comfortable for you, swing it around front and then allow it to come up and over the ear from the front. Because some people feel an impingement going up and over, but going down and up gives a certain freedom. And the other way is also inversely true. So giving people options so that they can better embody. And you did that so beautifully. And she said, you know, that how concerned I was, because a lot of my classes had women of my age and older concerned about osteoporosis and osteopenia in forward fold, which is not something I would hear very often in class. Now, here's my, my sort of caveat there. That was cued in my 300-hour teaching where we did anatomy and therapeutics. And we also, we did a lot of different modules. And so the language was very different than things I had heard before. And so while I still didn't have a complete understanding of that, I feel like I knew enough To at least put that out there to say, you know, if you have osteopenia or osteoporosis, really consult your doctor because those forward folds in their full expressions can put undue pressure on the vertebrae and there could be some hairline fractures and things like that. That was my understanding, but that was all my understanding. And so if it was enough to keep people from fully doing it unless until they had the okay, that was enough for me. I didn't feel like I needed to be an expert in osteoporosis to offer that as an option but that was something that she remembered. And yeah. then she also said that I was always saying people's dogs were too short. There could be more space between hands and feet, but then that's also an individual thing. Like we had a student who came in and her dog was so short. I was uncomfortable. It was almost like a forward, an Uttanasana, a forward fold. And she's like, "Nope, Teresa told me I needed to do this. I was like, if Teresa told you, then that's the way you should be doing it. Like I stepped
1: back from the, the dog. I think that's the beauty of having so many different people, bodies, shapes, everything in our classes is, you know, and that's going to take me back to the listen to your body cue. Because we have so many different people, so many different shapes, so many different expression levels of people who come into a mixed class, we do. We see many, many, many variations when you are the person who's cueing. And the teacher in the beginning of the room. And it reminds me that there is a visual that I have of what different asana look like. But in experience, in real life, watching people execute it, there are so many different ways to see that same asana. Long dog, downward dogs, short downward dogs, you know, different expressions of how people look at their twists there's just so many different ways and when the the listen to your body really does need a whole lot more explanation right what am i you you said this earlier what am i listening for right what am i what is my body trying to tell me and for me there's just so many things i could add after that sentence like are you in pain Are you really struggling too much effort to get into this pose? Is there something prior to what that pose looks like in your brain? This is what down dog looks like. So I'm going to really try and get to that. Or is there an edge that's asking for a little bit of time to lengthen, to get more supple, to be trained, to get more strength that is requiring a modification? Is my body... Like I have certain shapes that I get into even after over 25 years of practicing that still take my breath away when I get there. And when I get into a shape and I'm like, that is a listening to my body. I was like, why did I, why do I always have this really deep inhale when I get to this spot in this pose? But what is and, it
0: saying? That deep inhale, that is that's that my, my, But but is that something that like, oh, that is delightful and that is something that that elevates the experience or that taking the breath away, is that, should I be listening to that and backing off a little bit? Is it an invitation to explore further into the woods or is it a caution to move back? Like that's the piece. I don't always understand the language of what I'm listening to. So I might experience that breath, but not know if it's an invitation
1: or like, go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, and there's where that cue comes into that confusing state. What is it that when I get there? And for me, what it has taught me over the years of listening to that cue is can I explore it from a whole lot of different angles? Can, can I say, please- um, yes, I am going to stop here and not worry about the fact that my twist looks Different than what I'm imagining it. When I get halfway into it, do I have the ability to go further? I do. But is this an invitation to wait and see what happens at this point? Or, and I've done that, then I can say, okay, so I've stopped at that point and sat with it and tried to listen to whatever comes up in my breath, in my mind, in my thoughts, in my emotions. Is there pain around that sensation? And really just, Spent some quality time with the place where I went. But then I also have done the opposite and said, Oh, thank you for that breath. Let me see what happens if I then have this nice, slow exhale as I keep moving beyond it, because that was a deep inhale. Like, a. so what happens if I slowly exhale and keep moving deeper into my twist? what information do I have there? You say this a lot in the classes I've taken with you. We collect a lot of data along the way of these movements. And so, yes, to your point, I I heard the language of the inhale, but then the interpretation takes the time and my commitment to wanting to know why I keep inhaling so deeply in that one spot all the time. And, you know, I said, I've been doing this for a long time and there's many, many different options to um, explore. And I think that is the language. The language is to notice, to notice that I'm noticing, and then to say, I have lots of choices right here. Let me play with all of them.
0: So I'm going to land on Manamaya Kosha there for a moment, because we also come in each day with whatever it is that we have and who we are and our identity stuff and all of that. And one of the things I've had to work with really hard is is a sense, and I know that it's not a thing, Shauna, but it's a thing for me in my head is, and I say Shauna because we had to talk about this, the laziness. I have a tendency to just kind of path of least resistance stay, like, I love doing things outside my comfort zone. But if it's too, like too much effort on a certain day or in a certain moment, I might choose to just, you know, be. And that's a beautiful thing if it's not habitual pattern, if it's not just something that, you know, I do because that's who I am. That's who I've always been. And I don't believe in that. I think identity is porous. And I've been writing a lot about identity lately. But this idea of if I get to a certain point, And I have that deep languorous breath and I'm feeling a sensation. I have to be really clear about what my intention is, why I've come to my mat. If it's so all of these practices, my big why is that I want to experience everything I can in this body. I want to know what it feels like to have direct experience with my optimal being. And so these practices purportedly will help me get to some of those destinations. Now I'm not destination oriented. The journey has been incredible so far and I don't want it to end. So I'm not all that interested in getting to the the final destination, but that the the self-inquiry and the ability to kind of work with my own shadow when I'm in these physical poses, when I'm in the classroom with all these other people who are with their own shadows. So like in my 300 hour, we learned something from the Tibetan heart yoga and I'm not going to go into that whole thing, but there was this demon slayer mudra, which was like the rock and roll sign. And in Warrior 2, we would kind of look out. I think I may have talked about this before in another one, but putting, throwing our demons through the goalpost of our fingers as we're kind of like, but not wanting to infect the other people in the class with our demons. That's energy. That's just, you know, a thought pattern. But then someone in class one day said, Oh, What you forgot to do was shake your fingers to the ground. I was like, I didn't forget. What is that? Like, I had no idea what that was. She said, oh yeah, you take that energy and you shake it to the ground so that the earth can purify it so that it doesn't infect the the rest of the room, that it is just, you know, and I thought whatever that means, whatever shit that is, it resonated with me and I love that, but it's, it speaks to when we come into as individuals into the collective of a community class that. We are, we are bouncing our energies off of other people and their energies are bouncing off of us. And so sometimes getting to know what it is I'm working with in that moment is challenging. And sometimes I don't give a shit. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm just gonna go with the flow. That is my natural pattern to do. And I don't mind defaulting to that because there's data there too. You know, nothing is wasted. But, you know, for those deeper inquiries, for those places that sort of say, oh, I'm hearing that cue very differently now we talked a little bit earlier how back in the 90s in Triangle, in Trikonasana, Triangle, Trikonasana, we were told to pretend as if we were in between two panes of glass. Pelvis is a bowl. How does that work? What is that doing to the body when we try to stack the hips rather than allow the bowl to to shift with one movement? There's just, you know, these are things that over time we've we've begun to discover. What is happening in bodies that have been doing that? You know, what is happening in the West with yoga as we cue these certain things? And so we shift our cues. We learn from our past experiences. But it all goes back to something that you said, and it's awareness. We need to have an understanding, an embodiment, so that when we do regurgitate some of these, you know, prefabricated cues, there's
1: there are levels of understanding and you know. Yeah. I also am fascinated by the panes of glass. Um Q. And I understand exactly where it's coming from because the planes of the body we move in certain planes of motion. And so between two panes of glass is saying this is an abduction, adduction type of a movement. We're looking for a movement that you could do without taking your body parts off of a wall. It's a jumping jack, is something that happens within that plane of motion, within this. Leaning from side to side or lateral motions come within there. And one of the compensatory patterns in lateral movements is to twist. And so I understand where the cue came from. The cue was saying, don't twist in this asana. It's a lateral movement back and forth. It doesn't have a twist in it because the twist is the part that's injurious. So I can see where people came up with that. But
0: sometimes they would add stack your hips.
1: Yes, because that would be it. What they're asking for is a complete lateral movement. So the hips are stacked this but if way. if they had
0: said that,
1: that right. would have landed That's very Q.
0: different on then, because that pane of glass is like you are a flat pancake. You are, you know, lined up in that plane. And, you know, it just, the way you said it made so much more sense in my, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I get that. I could do that.
1: Yeah. So again, it's coming back to something and and I've done this. And so it's not a judgment against other people. It's an assumption that people are going to understand the words that I use, but also... But <laughs> I, I never have that. People come up to me after class and I loved your class. I didn't understand a fucking word you said. <laughs> One of mine is, you know, two panes of glass is a sentence that comes out that, that quickly. The okay, so this is abduction and adduction and we're moving through the planes of motion that the body's got. Co- it's a lot of cueing for a class for people to follow along. So
0: yeah, but you can, you could edit that down too. It doesn't have to be all those words. I mean, adduction and abduction when I, in the first 10 years of my practice would have been meaningless to me, meaningless. But if you say, okay, you know, allow yourself to get really long and without rotating your body, see if you can slowly move only to the side. You know, simple words can also
1: convey very complicated meanings. And that's where the skill of cueing comes in. You know, for me, I go back and forth between my muscular skeletal anatomy training and, you know, ways of making that information. And I'm really pretty good at taking complex. You're awesome at it and making them simple. So, uh, but... There's a lot of terminology. And so we have had this conversation so far about some of the cueing and what you hear in a yoga class. But there's also the weaving back and forth between languages. And so we've got Sanskrit. So, what is Sanskrit? Earlier, you talked just a couple of minutes ago about the mudra. And as you were talking, I didn't get back. You talked about like the, oh, well, the demon slayer mudra, the demon slayer mudra. And as you were talking, and I didn't go back to it, but for those who are listening who might not be uh, yogis in class, a mudra is a hand gesture that we make. So the assumption that I have, and I'm sure many other people who are teaching and queuing, is some of the words I've learned that are the, the terminology in Sanskrit needs an explanation often. And yes, the students will catch up if they continuously mm-hmm. come to a teacher's class who uses uh, a more sanskrit language versus a more english language and we do like to expand our our use of the language what's well, the language of yoga the language of yoga but there's a teaching that needs to happen mm-hmm. um within uh those communications where we can weave back and forth. And as students grow with us, Mm -hmm. they also grow with the language.
0: And that's a really important point as teachers from a studio. I mean, very rarely would I get absolutely new people. It was a community of people who showed up over and over again. And so the teaching has to evolve because you don't want to do the same class all the time in the same language. But we also asked the question in the beginning, anyone here new to yoga? Is anyone here first time, first 10 times? You know, if there's, and I used to always encourage people to ask questions during class. You have a question, just yell it out. You know, we're here to learn. And so there was also that community building and we don't always have to reinvent the wheel. You know, if we see that the same people are showing up every single time, we get to make certain assumptions and expand our own vocabulary with them, which is, I think that was one of the more exciting parts is. I like teaching the beginners was was fulfilling because it kept me sharp. It kept me having to remember stuff and know things. And I haven't taught or taken a public class in years. So, so much of what I'm thinking now is from memory because my yoga practice has become so personal. And I cue myself from just my own thoughts and my own desires and needs and intentions. And it's something very different now. So if these things are (laughs) resonating or not, I know like you were talking about the language and I said something like sometimes simple language can convey a difficult or more complicated thing. Victoria, one of our students, she said for her, she loves the simple instruction of inhale, rise, exhale, fold. It's Mm. simple. And yes, there's opportunity within there to get really specific and to refine that, that cue. If you're in a room and you're looking at people and there there's no indication that further explanation is necessary, then let it be like there's that part, too. We don't have to overdo it. We don't have to explain it within an inch of our lives. Right. Like if we don't see a need for it, then talking about it just becomes an exercise in hearing ourselves
1: talk, which admittedly, I enjoy hearing myself talk. So I've probably done that. Yeah, well, since you're saying that, while we are talking about the developing the skill of teaching and communication, that is another part of yoga is really getting comfortable with our own voice and knowing just how much you want to say, how much voice you want in a class and how much silence we want to leave for people to be able to be embodied and to experience their poses without my personal chatter going on in the background. And that is another skill of how much queuing and talking is there going to be in the class and how much quiet time will there be for people to be in their own space? Like you're saying in your personal practice, you're queuing from your own thoughts, from even maybe because you've been doing it so long, I don't know about you, but my cueing in my personal practice goes beyond a voice and it follows what my body wants to do next. And so we even, they're not separate, right? I even lose, I lose the listening to my own words as words and step into sensation. And that was a really great reminder for me that when I'm in my practice, I do I step into my sensation. So if I am speaking too much and saying too many words, it's great for the beginner who needs somebody to help coax them along, but the more experienced yogi in the class might be thinking, oh my gosh, Teresa. Well, and then,
0: but those people, they'll come to you or not, you know, I know that I talk way too much in a yoga class. It wasn't until later that silence became more of an important piece of my teaching. Um, But I'm also like, I prefer a quieter teacher. But as a teacher, I'm an entertainer, like that's a part of my personality. It's a part of who I am. And so that to me was also like an opportunity to practice a little material. No, I'm I'm joking, but there's part truth in there. You know, I think that if you can get people to laugh or you can get people to have an experience that is outside the thing that we're talking about, then something organic can happen. And you were talking about the thoughts, you know, monomaya kosha, the thinking kosha is also the emotional one. So it's not just, I'm not hearing myself say, okay, now I'm coming into Tadasana and I'm going to move into a lunge and I'm going to be doing these things. It's, I can't tell the difference between my thoughts, my emotions, my experience in my body as I'm moving. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a team effort. It's a total team effort. And so it's it, it, to isolate the thoughts that comes a little bit later, like with my meditation that comes after the asana practice. That's when I get to really work with the thoughts in that particular way. But it's interesting, the things that come up, like my very first teacher, Lippi, I remember precious little about the experience, except that I loved her so much. But she, one thing I remember her saying is there's no such thing as perfect and you already are. And so that piece also, you know, it's like how much, Do I need to fit into the the instructional piece? And how much do I just release to the experience? And like you said, it's, I don't want to be injured, but I think for many years when I was so hyper-focused on my alignment and my body and this and that, there was more opportunity for injury because there is no one size fits all. And so the things I was hearing were ubiquitous. (laughs) They were sort of, you know, meant to kind of cover a large swath of, of experience which wasn't mine, which I'm going to get to just two more, two more things that people said. Another Teresa, a student of both of ours, she said she remembered the cue. Sometimes it's how you get into the pose. So it's not the pose itself, but it's how you get into it, which for her was sort of a liberating no one size fits all that it's not necessarily how it looks, but how do you approach it? And then Lori, who is part of our our mastermind, she said she's not really a yogi, but she does it like when Stacy teaches or when her daughter comes to, to town. She said, but the thing that she appreciates most is the reminder to breathe because she said she forgets, she doesn't realize how often she's holding her breath and the reminder for the shoulders back and down, like there's this to release that tension. So for someone else, that might not be the thing, but for someone else to hear it, just take a breath. Some of them are like, fucking A, I'm always breathing. Like I'm like, my, my autonomic nervous system's taking care of that. But sometimes we are, we are holding it. And that is just, you know, a truth. So those are some of the things that our direct students and friends have, have said about what well, shit they hear in a yoga class.
1: I'm with Laurie on that one because I, especially uh, more so in my earlier studio days, mm-hmm. I would find myself holding my breath and. You know, the the cue to breathe was a really great one. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not breathing. But also the cue, listen to your breath. And that was a part where I found that my ego came in because I also had to take that next leap that while I'm holding my breath, I'm not breathing. Maybe this class is a little too strenuous for me because the other alternate cue was given when it was saying, listen to your breath. You can always come into child's pose. You can always take a rest. You don't have to complete every single vinyasa. This is your practice. Be on your mat. I've heard all of those cues. But my ego with, you know, and Lori as the reminder of way back in the day when that was, when I noticed I wasn't breathing, I would be, oh, thank you for the cue to breathe. And I would start to breathe. But then my experience grew through the knowledge of doing it that the reason I wasn't breathing was because I was having trouble keeping up with that vinyasa. It was too fast paced for me. There were too many, and I was trying to flow through something that my body had not been conditioned to do yet. Mm-hmm. And the listening to my breath and noticing that I wasn't breathing was an invitation to say, "You can stay in child's pose for this next vinyasa mm-hmm. and catch up again on the next one." And a uh, vinyasa, fl- since we're talking about words, you hear linking breath class, with movement in breath with movement. So uh, we'll just put that right in there. So, you know,
0: and we also get double messages all the
1: time. So there's one cue that I
0: hear a lot, and June was one of them, but also many teachers. The pose starts the moment you want to get out of it. So why do you want to get out of it? For me, sometimes it is a labored breath, but I feel like if I can sustain the shape and not necessarily in a movement, but if I'm holding warrior two for three minutes, by that third minute, I can feel my breath shifting. I can feel that there's an experience that if I felt like the path of least resistance, I would go right into child's pose. But in order to grow and to experience directly the capacity my body has to get through an uncomfortable situation, then going through that and allowing the breath to find its way through that discomfort, and it's not pain, but real discomfort. I was watching Russell Brand the other day. He's a fucking, you know, nut, nut job, but I fucking love him. But he was doing the Win Hof, you know, getting into the cold water. And he did a very deliberate, like breathing because he didn't want to start hyperventilating and then go under. He said, I've got a, you know, a camera guy here who would get me if I did. But, you know, to really be aware of the breath. And he said his teacher Win Hof, who does, you know, the cold immersions, that he might say that it's good for inflammation or it's good for other things. But for Russell, he was doing it so that he could experience his mind over matter in extreme situations. If he can be in that cold water for three minutes and he can do that with deliberation and intention, then, I mean, yes, his breath was labored and all of these other things were going on, but he got to work with his his body and his mind in a way that was extreme. So, there are double messages there too, but there's also, you know, what is the message you want? Why are you on your mat? This is why the why is so important. Because if it's just, you know, to be able to get through and push through and to, you know, there are many different ways you can do that. And yoga asks us to find that balance between the effort and the ease. But if our ease is extreme, then maybe the effort also needs to be extreme to find that balance. I don't know. That's just a thing that I thought of right now in this moment. It was a good thing to just right? think of right
1: now. You because my beating. ease can
0: be my mom once said, Sherry, most people suffer from too much stress. You suffer from not enough. Well, you know, I got older and stress certainly came back into my life. But, you know, that speaks to a, a natural tendency of mine to kind of just sit back and not be passive, but to let they like the ease, like that. let's sit whatever. But so when I've done the New York, the Boston, New York AIDS rides and done the things that have required that I get out of my physical comfort zone and rise to the occasion, I know I can fucking do it. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I've had many of those experiences just last. And I think I talked about this was when I was in Yosemite Mm -hmm. and I climbed to the top of the waterfall. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, it was he. I forget what it was now, but it's 700 steps, stone staircase. It might've been more. I don't remember. It was a lot of freaking steps to get to the top and I would get winded in different places. And once you started, there was no going back because there was only up. Mm -hmm. So challenges really do help us to, or help me to know what I'm capable of, that I can challenge myself and know that by the end of that, that I've, I've completed it, that when I'm challenged, when I put my mind mind over matter to get into it and do what I set out to do, and then I accomplish it, accomplish it. It's a great sense of satisfaction, and to know that I can push myself. At the same time, you know, you had mentioned, you know, your mom saying uh, there being that balance of effort and ease. You know, are we moving or are we staying still? Do we stay and experience this in child's pose? Or do we try and work through it and see? And all of them are options. And that comes back into your why. When you talked about like the discomfort and being able to be in warrior uh, warrior two for the three minutes and then start to notice your breath and the changes that were coming, what occurred to me was those are the, some of the cues that I give when I teach in classes where all the poses are designed to be three to five minutes. One of the things that I've noticed in my yin practice, and one of the cues I might share while I'm teaching a yin practice, is that yin can be extremely challenging because staying still is challenging. It also offers us the opportunity to sit with discomfort, whether not pain, but but with that discomfort that you refer to, whether it's discomfort in my body, like, oh my gosh, I'm getting stiff, or, or, You know, I've been in this pose for a long time. When do I get to move again? Or the discomfort of the thoughts that come up because I'm in this particular shape. Or maybe some emotions arise and I am staying still, which is why it's a challenge of staying still. I'm staying still long enough to um, sit with the emotion that is coming up and allow it to be a part of the experience. So, so many, I mean, we could probably go on for this conversation of things we hear and do in a yoga class because yoga, go back to yoga eight and the koshas and all the things we've talked about have so many different ways to have a conversation, but I think we might want to call this one as maybe getting close to the end. What do you have left?
0: Let's end with a joke that comes Um, right out of the June list. Yes, June, share with us. What does a dyslexic cow say? Oh, spelled O-O-O-M, moo, backwards. Okay. If I have to explain the joke, it's not a joke. All right. Do we have anything to promote at the end of this before we go? We have our Discover Your Excellence coming up, which is going to be a virtual experience. And then we have our Rhythm and Rhyme Reset Retreat coming up at the end of June. So just stay present. look Look at the show notes and your newsletter. And if you're not on the newsletter, please join it it's fun. I I write fun things. You'll, you'll enjoy it. I promise. Until next
1: time. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for reading, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative, live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up.
0: Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.